The Guardian. It's time to pack up your inflatables, hide the punch and make your friends jump over the back fence to safety. Our parents are home and the World Cup pool party is over. There's been splashing and frolicking, some time in the sun, a few massive bombs and one particular guest that sank without trace. But now the time for fun is over and everyone has to study for finals. We'll have our heads in the books for the duration here at the Guardian World Cup podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lemon. And later in the show, we'll take a glance at the quarterfinals and next week we'll be doing our loving retrospective over the entire tournament. But today, with the pool stage done, we want to talk associate cricket. And we don't want to talk in one of the two commonly employed modes, one where we patronise those teams like parents at a school sports competition where everyone gets a ribbon for being such plucky little brave competitors. Oh yes, look at their delightful little smiles and they just tried so very hard. It's like they thought they were people. Nor do we want the dismissive, no, they're rubbish, my dog's a better opening batsman, what's the point, let's just cut our losses and burn it all to the ground. We want to have a deeper look at how cricket works. Even those of us who follow the game professionally don't often know very much about the lower tiers, what their barriers are and what can be done to grow the game. So to talk through those issues with me today, associate expert and host of the Associate and Affiliate Cricket Podcast, Russell Degnan, global cricket nomad and podcaster with Couch Talk, Subhash Jayaraman, and cricket writer, commentator and feature on the Can't Bowl, Can't Throw podcast, Cat Jones. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for having us. Yes. So, look, we want to. I, I guess a lot of people have um, their only real contact with associate cricket, and it's probably the same for most of us. Is in the World Cup every few years when a couple of these unlikely sort of teams pop through, and we think, oh, Hong Kong has a cricket team, or you know, the UAE are back for the first time in in twenty years, and we get a little bit excited for a short while, and then the cup finishes, and then we forget about them. And, you know, we want to get to know a little bit more about them. So I figure we should start with uh, the teams that people know most. uh, And those are the teams that have been playing for the last few weeks and that we've been watching week in and week out. Let's have a look at the report card for the four associate teams who've all, unfortunately for them, just been knocked out of this World Cup. Ireland were playing for their place last night but couldn't quite clinch it against Pakistan. So Ireland, Scotland, the UAE uh, and Afghanistan Perhaps we'll start with Scotland because I think they've got a bit less of the love and attention over this World Cup, but um, but they've had their moments, Subash. Yeah, actually. I thought they would do a lot better than how they ended up being uh, because I saw them play Ireland in Malahide um, in September and it was a three ODI series and, uh, you know, in two of the matches they gave Ireland run for the money and actually won the third match of the series. So I thought they had decent bowling, very good batting, and they would do well in Australia and New Zealand, um, aiding their bowlers that much more. But I was um, disappointed that uh, they couldn't get a win. Uh, they could have, I suppose, with, against Afghanistan. Um, Josh Davey was quite impressive uh, amongst the highest wicket takers in the World Cup. Uh, I think uh, he got 15, yes. if I'm right. Yeah, yeah 15. Um, and in terms of batting, uh, they had, you know, McLeod was, Callum McLeod was a disappointment, but you had Momsen and uh, Kotzer doing quite well, 253, 254 respectively, I think. Mm-hmm. So in those sense, yeah, they did all right. But overall, as a team, I was disappointed. Yeah, look, I, I really enjoyed particularly the Afghanistan game. And that was that was early on, so people may have uh, forgotten that one. But Afghanistan actually were, were bowled out, almost bowled out for 90 or 100. They were seven for 90. And then they chased their 211 with about three balls to spare. That was a fabulous game. And they really almost won that. I mean, they, they, they could have come very close. But, I mean, particularly, you know, you saw Scotland come out against Bangladesh and, and rattle off that, um, you know, well over 300 in that mm. match. Kyle Kurtz are making 150. 
And you would have thought against Bangladesh at almost any other time in their history, um, Scotland would have had a win there. You were, you were just expecting Bangladesh mm. to crumble. And in, really a revelation out of that game was the way that, that Bangladesh came out, played confidently, played positively. And that's what got their, their tournament on track and you know led to them beating England and really running New Zealand very close the other night. I guess there was an earlier match as well against, if you will, Associate Nations, Afghanistan. Um, where Afghanistan had gotten their first four wickets and then the class of Sakibul Hassan and Mushfiqur Rahim took the game away. Um, and since then, Bangladesh have been playing quite well. Of course, you know what happened with England. But uh, yeah, uh, I thought these two, Scotland and Afghanistan, had a realistic chance against uh, Bangladesh. Um, and going back to what Kat said earlier about Afghanistan-Scotland game, I think it is sad that Scotland lost that. But the fact that it gave us the moment of the World Cup so far, mm. Shapur Zadran, you know, hitting Ian Wardler through a fine leg, and you know he take he takes few steps down the pitch, <laughs> thinking he'll sneak a single, and then realizes the ball has gone past the fielder and it's going to go to the boundary, and he just goes absolutely nuts, takes yeah. the helmet off, and then does the Shoaib their airplane pose, and you know <laughs> collapses on the ground face first. You know you can't beat that, mm. and. You get such stories by allowing teams to play, and we can get on talk about this much later. But um, you know, cricket such a you know uh, closed club, and needs to be opened up just for these moments. You know, mm. they may not go and win the World Cup right away. But as Mahila Jayawardena said, if cricket hadn't taken a punt on him in 1983, they wouldn't have won the World Cup in 1996. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, but I mean also that there were people saying, oh, you've had a close match between two associate nations, good for you, they could do that somewhere else. But if they'd done it somewhere else, no one would have paid attention, no one would care, no one would have seen it and it wouldn't have meant anything near as much as it meant to the Afghanistan players and you know how devastated the Scottish players were after letting that match slip. Absolutely. You know, going back to that game I saw Scotland v Ireland in Malahide, I don't know, there were maybe 20 people at the ground of which five of them had come down from Scotland. Um, and uh, to me, it was me and my wife and then 13 other Irish fans. There you go. And I don't know how many people followed it, uh, but I don't know how many knew that Scotland actually won a match in that series. So, yeah, you want these platforms, global platforms, where these teams can do the very best that they can and show what they can do and then, uh, you know, uh, have more games um, in such platforms against bigger teams, weaker teams, whatever the case might be. But they need that opportunity. And I, I think that uh, the New Zealand-Scotland game as well was also a creditable performance by the Scots. You know, to be bowled out for 140 was disappointing, but they've come back and it never really looked to me like New Zealand were likely to lose that game. But to, to get them seven down, sort of crawling to that total and being quite relieved to get there in the end is is an achievement for a side like Scotland. I didn't think New Zealand would actually lose, but when they were seven down, I thought there was a big chance of them losing. Um, and in fact, the way they won was with Daniel Vittori getting a top edge over slips. Yep. There were two of them waiting for that, but they got lucky. Right? Vittori goes, uh, still anything happens. Mm. Anything can happen. That's why you play the game. Um, I was hoping that, you know, it was perfect. New Zealand were trying to be aggressive. A lot of edges flying. I thought Scotland would pull, uh, 
pull a fast one, but it didn't happen. Yeah. Mm, it's certainly been entertaining to watch regardless. And always with one day as the low scoring matches are always the most exciting. And people don't want to see, you know, India beating a team by 300 runs. And it, it's really tedious, particularly if you like watching the, the great bowling. And so a team like Afghanistan, watching them bowl so be- beautifully has been wonderful. Yeah. So Afghanistan, you know, they probably had their best chance for a big upset against Sri Lanka. They bowled really well against them for, you know, probably 60% of the match and then let it slip at the end, um, you know, only only defending a total of about 236, I think. Um, but they, they, they had their opportunity to get in there. And I felt like later in the tournament, they, Afghanistan got quite tired and, and really, you know, it was a bit of a fizzer towards the end. They had a very flat final game against England, you know, with the rain affecting that result. And, and they were obviously pummeled against um, Australia in Perth. That Sri Lanka game, they should, as you said, rightly, they had the opportunity. And even with similar as happened with Bangladesh, here once again, the class of Maila Javadne and then the patience of Angela Matthews came through for them and they got them out. And then Tishara Pereira comes and, um, you know, bashes them. I guess that's where the difference is. It's it's not a big difference. It's that game changer, either with the ball or the bat coming somewhere, you know, seven and eight, that can give you that additional 60, 70 runs really quickly. That's what uh, these teams are missing. If they have that in place, I think they can compete with everybody. Now, the United Arab Emirates, uh, you know, again, put up quite a few very solid performances and then quite a few very poor performances in the back end of the tournament. And I think... There's a bit of a pattern there that that teams tend to get a bit overwhelmed. You know, maybe they come out strong for their first two or three games, and then uh, just the experience of being in a World Cup and, and having to deal with all of the surrounding paraphernalia starts to get to them, and the travel and the the limited recovery time, and they sort of uh, slipped off at the end there. But the UAE, well, they had an excellent game against Ireland, where they very nearly. Um, held on defending a total that, that Ireland were just able to chase down thanks to Kevin O'Brien smashing it everywhere. But he was dropped at a crucial stage in that chase and, and went on to be the difference. Um, and particularly the figures of Shaiman Anwar finished in the top 10 run scorers in the tournament. Now, he's a, you know, a UAE batsman who once hit seven sixes in a club game, <laughs> um, including one off a no ball. And he looks like a batsman who hit seven sixes in a club game you know he, he has a, a fairly kind of homemade technique and he's just come out and and had a had a lash but he's actually had a fair bit of success at this level now yeah look i think it's it'd be how great would it be to see him playing in say the big bash for example come out to australia we might talk about this a bit later but that's exactly what you need to get more people familiar you know with shakib al hassan playing in the big bash and extremely popular and very well known that really helps even though this uh, tournament isn't necessarily televised in the in the best possible way for the for the uh, affiliate ma- the associate matches and and also Ryan Tendiscata from yeah. from the Netherlands has been playing in the big bash now he's got yeah. one of the best ODI records of all time from about 30 games you know he's mm. he's in terms of centuries per innings he's absolutely elite he's scoring faster than Virat Kohli just about um, and he's also got one of the best bowling strike rates of all time in one day but he's only been allowed to play 30 odd games. Yeah and, and look I think it is a shame that we're not allowed to watch this. I mean Russell did you see much of it if you were limited to, to Channel 9 you didn't see a lot of this sometimes. I saw most of this. Shaman was a fascinating player because about 18 months ago he went on a real streak for the UAE and scored century after century and then he actually was almost at the point where he was being dropped just before this tournament and, and there was a few people who thought he should be and then he's come here and he's top scored and it's been amazing but mm. I, I totally agree about the Big Bash. It's 
that players like that would be such a cult figure if you were playing for them. I think this year's legacy arca from PNG was on the Renegades books and he never actually got a game. But mm. it would have been great for PNG cricket and for him to actually get out in the field and, and mm. just to promote the game through through the PNG, but also just for from a Renegade supporter to have a player like that that would have such as a cult, a cult following immediately because he's such an interesting player to watch. Uh, another one for me from the UAE was Amjad Javed, who's nominally a bowler but was actually one of their best with the bat as well. He had to bail out the team you know, a bunch of times. He did very well there, but he was also pretty solid bowling towards the end of the innings under pressure. Um, you know, He's another player who I'd love to see more of in, in a domestic sense or a T20 sense um, because he seems to have those weapons. Going back to uh, when you, where you mentioned Ryan Tendiskara and Shaiman Anwar, Shaiman Anwar is now the highest scorer in a World Cup for an associate nation, mm. going past Ryan, who had 307 in 2011. Right. Now, Shaiman has 311 um, in this World Cup, 2015 World Cup. So I just thought give you that nugget of information. Yeah, and, and the UAE also had a pretty narrow loss to Zimbabwe when they... They set Zimbabwe 285 or you know, 286 to win and, and Zimbabwe were only narrowly able to chase that down and looked like they might choke it there. So, uh, you know, again, a couple of close ones that they weren't quite able to pull off. And then I suppose the really the, the team who'd be most disappointed would be Ireland. They've beaten two test sides in this World Cup. They've beaten the West Indies and Zimbabwe. They beat their fellow associate UAE. And in other years, that would have been enough to get them through to the quarterfinals. Had Pakistan done the business against West Indies, um, Ireland would be in the quarters. Mm. As it is, the test teams in that pool shared the wins around amongst themselves between South Africa. You know, uh, South Africa lost to Pakistan. Pakistan beat the West Indies. West Indies beat uh, uh, beat Ireland when they played them. So they were able to keep them out of the quarters. I mean, what we learned from this World Cup 2015 is that the gap is not that much. Mm. As we said, you know, just one player here and there, maybe a you know ringer with a ball or somebody, um, and especially teams that might be ranked five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they could any of them could lose at mm. any day to eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. It's not that big a difference. Maybe there is bunching up up top, you know, Australia, New Zealand, India, perhaps South Africa. Other than that, it's all free for all, and um, it's a shame that we may not um, get to see such, uh, I don't know, what's the word for it, such... Um, Diversity of, of, of... Yeah, results, I suppose. Mm. Because we haven't seen similar things with uh, associate nations in previous World Cups, maybe Ireland. Uh, yep. Other than that, you know, I remember UAE getting hammered in 96, you know. Yeah, things Africa. like, like yeah. Canada being bowled out for 35 by Sri Lanka. None of that sort stuff of is happening now, which is mm. good. Yeah. The other thing is that you, know, you get to see a diversity of playing styles as well because the top eight nations, they all play much the same way. I'm excluding England here. They play their own style. But the top eight nations play in a very similar way and you get to see a different style of cricket, much like you do in the Football World Cup when you get to see a bunch of different teams and the teams from Japan play very differently to the European teams. It, it's a, just another way of playing and a bit more diversity in the style. Yeah. You, you definitely get that. Ireland actually, it, I think that, actually at that point, the, most of the associations haven't actually had that thing that the full members have where they've just smashed teams and got scores up to 400. I think um, Ireland did okay. They got a couple of scores over 330, but actually in general, we haven't seen that down the order kind of just blow them away in the last 10 overs. And actually, that was probably Ireland's, one of their biggest weaknesses, that they couldn't do that. And also, in the reverse, that they actually allowed teams to do that to them, that their fifth bowling option was Kevin O'Brien. And Kevin (laughs) O'Brien went from more than nine and over. And 
their bowling obviously just didn't have the strength. Um, they had issues with that generally because they were missing Tim Murtagh, who would have been their best bowler had he been. They there. have had some good bowlers in the part, better better than their lineup now. That's right. So Boyd Rankin has moved to England, and that took him out. Uh, Trent Johnson has retired, and he was with them until the end of the qualifiers. And then Tim Murtagh was injured just before the tournament. And he was one of the best bowlers in county cricket. So that's a Big loss, that would be a big loss for any team, I think. In Ireland, obviously, it showed in their performances. Interestingly, when you crunch the numbers, uh, looking at full members playing full members or full members playing associates in this World Cup, the average winning margin between full members was nearly 90 runs and over five wickets, you know, depending if it was a, a runs or wickets victory. So very few. There were, there were I ranked five games out of um, those 20 as close matches. And, you know, um, there was very little competitive cricket in a way. There were a huge number of massive scores. So three of the five biggest scores in the tournament were full members versus full members. You might think of the tournament and remember Australia making 400 against Afghanistan. But, in fact, there were massive scores going up um, between full member sides. And there was really very little difference in terms of competitiveness uh, when you're looking at the team batting first. I mean, uh, the first two weeks of the World Cup, it was it was just fantastic. It was it's a associate hipsters wet dream, mm. you know, because you have all these one-sided games where the teams getting bowled out really cheap. Uh, see England uh, v New Zealand, um, or getting scores piled on and then losing by ninety odd runs. And you had all these close games wherever associate nations were playing against each other or even against full member nations. And uh, I don't know whether somebody should do this. Go on Twitter and check for that timeline from February 14 till February 28th and look at uh, at ICC, see how many people tagged them saying, you know, mocking ICC and David mm-hmm. Richardson who said, well, this is a premier event of cricket and we only need close games. And then all his full members were, you know, letting him down. And, uh, you know, egg on his face, basically. Mm, yeah, you, I mean, you don't need to be competitive. And this is the argument with the associates. You have to be competitive. You don't actually need to be competitive with the other teams you're playing. You just have to have a close game. And I don't think the best game was till New Zealand played Australia between the full nations, which was 21 games in. That We didn't actually have a close game, really, till that point. I mean, it was only a close game. It wasn't a good game. It was just abysmal yeah. batting by both teams. Yeah, I think we've seen, too, with the fielding restrictions, that if a team has actually got wickets in hand towards the match, so if they're actually behind in the match, that's when the game gets blown out. And if the team chasing doesn't have that, then we end up with these huge disparities in score because one mm. team has scored 350 and the other team gets bowled out for 150 because they're just not capable of chasing that without the wickets mm. in hand. Mm. And, and almost exclusively in the full member v full member games, they were won by a team batting first making over 300. There were only, I think, six games, one chasing. Um, and the rest of those 19 matches were won by the team batting first. Um, there were 11 scores out of those 19 games that were over 300 between the full member nations and there were eight scores between full members and associates that were over 300 and three scores by associates over 300 against full members. So roughly on par there, the real difference where the associates fell away was in their own batting because their their average inning score is, is vastly down on the full members v full members average. Um, the associates struggling to to average just over 200 against full member sides. So, uh, you know, that's really where the difference lay. So we've seen, you know, a frustrating tournament perhaps for associate nations, all of whom had an opportunity here and there to to mark a win over a full member side. But 
um, were rarely able to get over the line except for the Irish. I mean, I'm sure every team that comes into the World Cup comes in with the hope of getting to the quarterfinals. Uh, maybe perhaps Akib Javed kind of tempered the expectations of his team, but I'm assuming the other three um, were really looking forward to making the quarterfinal because they had a way to get in. Um, so to not make that would be definitely frustrating and disappointing. Uh, but overall, I thought they have done a fantastic job, uh, you know, uh, credit to them and giving us entertaining cricket and uh, also, as uh, Richardson would call, competitive cricket. Yeah. That's gone! You're on the Guardian World Cup podcast with Jeff Lemon, Subhash Jairaman, Russell Degnan and Kat Jones. We're looking at associate cricket and cricket outside the top levels. Now, Russell, I want to throw to you because... Look, I'm going to be honest, as as a as a cricket fan and lover, I don't necessarily know everything about associate cricket and, you know, cricket outside the test rankings, and I have a feeling that a lot of people listening don't either. So as someone who knows a lot more than me, I want to turn to you and, and try to get a bit of an idea of how the structure of world cricket works, because there's so much of it going on that we hear very little about and almost never see? That's a very broad question. It is broad, <laughs> but let's let's start with as, as specifically as you want to. Let's start with the idea of status, I guess. It's probably the, the first. There's a number of different... There's three different tiers. We have the 10 test playing teams that are called full members, and they have voting rights and the right to play test cricket. Um, there are then 38 associate members, and those are nations that have enough infrastructure that they probably have... 1,000 to 2,000 players or more playing club cricket or, or that, that kind of cricket. And they are competing in the various ICC tournaments. And then below that, you've got affiliate members who are nations that don't necessarily have a lot of infrastructure. They, they may even have only a couple of hundred cricketers. Um, the requirement is to have, I think, eight teams to be an affiliate member. So you don't need to have a lot of cricket going on in the country to be an affiliate member. And... In total, there are 106 members, so there's quite a lot of, almost everywhere in the world, that every major country has a, a cricket nation playing, but I guess there's probably, including the associates and the full members, there's those 48 teams that are definitely, there's enough cricket there that, that they could play in competitive tournaments and in competitive structures, and there are structures below that where those competitions are, are being run. How do those associate nations like the ones that are featured in this edition of the World Cup make their way into into these top-level tournaments? So there's a structure below called the World Cricket League and there are six divisions of World Cricket League. I've got to get that right. There, there used to be eight and they've removed a couple recently. At the very top level of the World Cricket League, there's the World Cric- there was a World Cricket League Championship that was played between the, the top eight associate nations and the top two of those went directly into the World Cup. That was Ireland and Afghanistan. And then there was a World Cup qualifier which was held in New Zealand a year ago which included the, the top teams from World Cricket League Division 2, uh, the two teams that qualified from World Cricket League Division 3 and the teams that hadn't gone through the World, Cric- World Cricket League Championship. And that was how they qualified for this World Cup. Now... The next World Cup, because it's supposed to be 10 teams, that's all going to change around. Um, Ireland and Afghanistan have, in theory, been given a status that allows them to play for test rankings, uh, for one-day rankings, that if they go in the top eight, they'll go directly into the World Cup. And if they don't, they'll go into the World Cup qualifier. And it's not entirely clear how the World Cup qualifier will be, but it will probably be 10 teams, that four teams that below the top eight in the full members and the next six 
from that World Cricket League structure coming through from there. And they'll have to play off for two positions only. That's correct, yeah. And now I remember reading something about uh, Netherlands losing their ODI status in somewhere in the mix of these qualifying tournaments. Um, is this, I mean, losing and gaining status, is this something that, that can happen that easily? It seems very arbitrary. Yes. Uh, so on top of all those structures, the top, I have to get this right, six teams have ODI status and that became a little bit confused because of the World 2020 about which teams will get 2020 status because different teams qualify for the World 2020 that actually qualified for the uh, top six one-day places. But that was something that I think from about 2007 they gave the top six teams one-day status and it was taken and given away to those teams as they moved on. So Bermuda used to have it and now they don't and Canada used to have it and now they don't. Um, The Netherlands is an interesting case because in the World Cup qualifiers, in the first round, they looked what they were set to go through. They'd lost a match to Namibia and they needed to not lose to Kenya by a really large margin. And then Kenya came out and smashed them for 260-odd and 35 overs. And then they knocked, basically knocked them out of the World Cup qualifiers and knocked them out of their one-day status straight away. Um, they've now, since then, they've gone through World Cricket League Division 2 and they're back in the World Cricket League Championship, which means they might get one-day status back. Uh, this, this status becomes a very strange thing because in the past World Cricket League Championship, six teams had one-day status and two teams didn't. So even though they were all playing against each other, some of the matches counted as a one-day international and some of the matches didn't. And uh, people who follow associate cricket think this is insane. I think it's insane, but this is the way it is. So, Russell, apart from the teams that have just played in the World Cup, Afghanistan, Ireland, UAE and Scotland, what are, who are the, and the Netherlands that, that did so well in the T20 World Cup, who are the next sort of four or five that are really pushing to get in that top tier? The next two teams on the rankings were Papua New Guinea and Hong Kong. Um, both are quite young, uh, quite dynamic and interesting. So Papua New Guinea are incredibly athletic, a little bit naive, uh, so they're kind of the new Afghanistan uh, Hong Kong are an interesting side. They, they don't have necessarily a lot of infrastructure in, um, and a huge playing base, but they've managed to get together a group of really young, really exciting players, and they're pushing forward. That They were on the verge of World Cup qualification. Scotland beat Kenya in the final match of their World Cup qualifying by, I think, about two wickets in about two overs to spare, which is what stopped Hong Kong from coming through. That's how close these things are. And... Um, so they're the next two, um, and then below that, Namibia and the Netherlands, Nepal, who are, of course, in the World 2020, and, and Kenya are still kind of going around, but they are, as you probably noticed, they've been going backwards for most of the past decade. And so just to ask a fairly dumb question, Papua New Guinea and Hong Kong are very close to Australia, so why don't we play them in whatever format, you know, Queensland or whatever, play, why don't we play them more often? Or, or play them at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good question. Um I think Cricket Australia would just say we don't have time within our schedule to do so. Um, that's, And I guess to some extent that's true, but the reason they don't have time is because they scheduled 45 matches, I think, against England in the last four years, and therefore that's the reason. Something I'm curious about is, say, you look at a team like the Netherlands um, when they were playing in the World T20, they seem to be largely made up of South Africans, uh, a few Australians, a couple of New Zealanders, and maybe two guys who were actually from Holland, you know, born and bred. The The language the team was speaking was English because none of them spoke Dutch apart from, uh, you know, those those couple of players. Does there, 
to me, I, I'm, I feel unconvinced about the credibility of that as a Dutch national team. It's, it's not really a Dutch team. It's a bunch of expats who have or, or sort of, you know, people who might have a Dutch parent who live elsewhere and have grown up elsewhere, um, whereas, you know, some other teams are much more closely based around the country. How do you... How do you think we confront this kind of, um, you know, is, is this a real cricket team? Is it not? Should we feel nonplussed by this? Should we, um, should we feel conflicted about it? I think you should feel conflicted. I, I think most of the associate followers are a bit conflicted and sometimes there are good reasons for it. The UAE is actually a good example because the UAE itself is actually a, an immigrant country. Nine-tenths of the population are expat people, so that's, their cricket team reflects their society. But the Netherlands in general haven't. But one of the good things in the last, I guess, eight, ten years is that we've seen huge growth in the actual size of the playing base in a lot of these nations. And in fact, the teams that haven't increased their playing base, and the Netherlands is actually one of those teams, Canada is one of those teams, although not quite to the extent, and um, Kenya is one of those teams, they've all been overtaken by teams that have increased the playing base. The Ireland and Scotland have gone from being roughly about the tenth of the size in New Zealand in terms of number of players to more like a third, almost to a half. And their futures are really rosy. They're, they're getting a lot of players. If you look at Ireland from 2007, they had a lot of expert players, and now it's almost entirely homegrown. And the best players in associate cricket are generally homegrown players. And we're, we're seeing, certainly over the last four or five years, associate cricket has really increase the number of homegrown players and the expat players that were in there and were actually the best players knocking around actually aren't really the best players knocking around anymore. They're, they're below and it's actually, it's cost the Dutch. It's one of the reasons that they've slipped down is actually that they don't have that homegrown base to draw on and therefore their best players are players who couldn't make it in the full member countries and that's why they're there. I mean, when you talk about whether they are actually from the nation, etc., etc., we can start with England. Of course, you know, um, but um, it's a chicken or the egg uh, question, you know. Do we get a team in place first to play? And also these teams um, from, say, 11 till whatever, they play a lot of cricket that has context to it rather than the full member nations who randomly schedule bilateral ODIs and this and that. Whereas these teams are actually playing, you know, when they said ICC is about meritocracy, meritocracy is actually outside the top 10. Um, where these teams are moving up and down, you know, as you said, Netherlands lost ODA status and they were getting it back, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas, no matter what Zimbabwe does, it's not losing any status. So, right. what is meritoc- where is the meritocracy there? So, so what happens basically between World Cups? You know, we see these teams, they whack a mole, they pop up every four years, they get smashed back down again, and they vanish, and we don't think about them for four more years. You know, as as basic sort of you know cricket. I hate this word, but consumers is the sort of word that the ICC would would like to use or that Cricket Australia would like to use, our, our cricket consumers or customers or whatever it is. We don't pay attention to these teams, but clearly they're doing things. They're playing matches that we're ignoring. What's, what's life like for an associate team outside the main game? That depends a little bit on how strong they are. Uh, the, the top teams are playing in what's called the Intercontinental Cup, and the World Cricket League Championship, which runs over a two- or three-year period. I think the next one will run over a four-year period. And the Inter- Intercontinental Cup is a four-day competition, so it's effectively test matches, but it doesn't get called that, of course. And the World Cricket League Championship is a one-day team, and they play basically a round-robin. In fact, it's the sort of structure that people who look at test cricket and say this is really badly structured would love because it's really well-structured and has a lot of context. And they also have the World 2020 qualifiers every two years, uh, although that will be every four years now. 
below that, the World Cricket League is played on a two-year cycle. Again, that might be extended out to three or four years because the ICC actually is of the belief that there's too much money going into tournament funding and not enough going into a development and therefore they'd like to spend less on, on some of these tournaments. But what it means for those teams is they play roughly five one days every two years and then they also play their regional competitions within the Asia or Europe for the World 2020 qualifiers. And that's their structure for which for part-time players, because most of them are professional except at the very, obviously the teams in this World Cup are, but most of them aren't. That's probably roughly the amount of cricket they can afford to play and get get leave for. So right. So most of these teams, most of these players aren't being looked after as professional players. They're not being paid a, a wage. But I mean, are they paid match fees or, or how does that sort of work? How can you play for a smaller team? So the World Cup teams earn it's about a million dollars per year from the ICC, and they get sponsorship on top of that. That's one of the reasons the World Cup is so important because it, it allows them to generate sponsorship because you get that exposure. They they are able to give professional contracts. So the Afghanistans and Ireland's so forth, they're all professional. And Ireland, Scotland also are within the county teams as well, so the county structure. So they have, they're fully professional. As you move down, what you'll find is they'll normally have one player who might be playing within a first-class structure or might be able to professional, and the rest of them, they might get a, a, a stipend. They'll get paid something from their local authorities, but it depends really on the local area. So Ugandan players get a little bit of money. They've got the uh, East Africa Premier League. But the amount of money they get from the ICC is probably comparable to what the wages are in that nation, which allows them to be um, paid professionally. Canada is not able on their money to pay professionally, and the USA obviously is not because obviously they just don't have the funds to Mm. to play a professional team. And the UAE are still roughly run as an amateur outfit but but must have been getting some funding from appearing in this World Cup. Yeah, so the UAE was a team that – one of those teams that didn't have one-day status in the lead-up to the tournament. So they didn't have as much funding as as the others and therefore they were being paid as amateurs. And in the next cycle, they'll probably hope to actually have enough funding to pay – professionally but I'm not sure it would be obviously up to the, their board to decide how they're going to try and use that money for development or whether they're going to try and have a professional team That's gone! You're on the Guardian World Cup podcast we're chatting to Russell Degnan about associate and affiliate cricket along with Subhash Jairaman and Kat Jones Now we want to have a look at the system in place, how it works, how it doesn't. There's been plenty of talk during this World Cup about the next World Cup being restricted to 10 teams, um, this World Cup having had 14 teams and you know whether associate nations should be allowed to be included and so on and so forth. But I want to go past that a little bit and look at the question of how is playing a World Cup any use to these teams when they don't get to play top teams between tournaments. Now, we hear the logic that these teams have to play in the World Cup because it gives them a chance against top sides and they develop. Okay, in between times, they don't get to play against top sides. So then the logic is, well, they should get to play more games against top sides between tournaments to develop. Then I think if you put one of these sides against a top nation, say, 15 times a year for the next four years, they would probably lose 60 games and win none because they don't actually have the strength in that team at as it presently is, to challenge those countries. So then you say, okay, what, what's the next step? How, can we, how do we build these teams so that they actually have a big enough pool of players to draw on and the resources to be able to challenge bigger teams and eventually become bigger teams? That's the question that I can't find an answer for. And it seems, Subhash, there's a lot of simplistic talk about associate nations and idealistic talk about them um, that isn't 
being realistic in how we can actually make things better? Sport is actually about being idealistic, actually, um, right? So in that sense, you have to have a very long vision. You can't think about four-year cycles of, well, if you put them 15 matches now, you know, uh, they may get beaten 60 times leading into the next World Cup, even if you give them that chance. But you have to give them that. You have to take that hit. But because more um, these, pardon my language here, smaller teams play bigger teams, you have that much more exposure within your country. And, you know, someone that is going to choose, say, basketball or golf or track might be attracted to playing cricket because they are going to be on television and there is a motivation. Say, for example, Sri Lanka always, you know, India has always behaved to Sri Lanka as they are the bigger brother, Sri Lanka is the smaller brother. So every chance that Sri Lanka got to play against India, even though they were losing most of the times, um, but they were looking for that one opportunity where they would put it across, and that is a huge day in Sri Lanka's history, right? Similarly, if you put these teams, they might lose 55 times out of 60, but those five times count hugely, and that will bring out your Shapur Zadran and Shaiman Anwar and all these guys. Otherwise, you're not going to get them. Yeah, look, I think um, I, we did talk a little bit about how the, uh, the the four associate nations got tired as this tournament went on. Uh, I actually think I saw improvement as the tournament went on. They got to play a lot more teams. They got to play teams that were much uh, much more experienced than them, and they got a lot of experience from that. I think that the perverse incentives with Bangladesh and Zimbabwe won't play these these nations because if they lose, then they they run the risk of losing their full status. The full status is what's holding those teams back. Otherwise, you would get a lot of teams that were about the same. Level playing each other and at the moment that isn't happening because uh, Bangladesh and, and Zimbabwe are running the risk of losing test status and losing full status so it, the whole hierarchical issue is, is the main problem I think getting rid of that means they would play a lot more cricket. The funny thing there is you know they no longer run the risk of losing their full, st- full mm. member status even if they lose mm. because the position paper that happened um, last year has ensured that, you know, yeah, there is there will be a playoff between mm. 9, 10, 11, 12, etc. Um, but, the, and if, say, for example, Ireland were to actually beat them in a playoff and become a test-playing nation, still Bangladesh, let's say it was Bangladesh um, or Zimbabwe, they will not lose test status. So they'll still get the same amount of funding. They'll have the same voting rights, which is voting rights is the absolute key mm. in ICC. It doesn't matter whether you have, uh, you know, 11, five Tendulkars and six Shoabaktas in your team. If you don't have voting rights, you're worth nothing, mm. basically, in ICC, right? So, um, and they don't want to open up that. That's, that's the crux of all the problems in cricket um, because it has been set up... Um, for the better or worse, in 96 by Jagmohan Dalmia, who has now come back as BCA, CA president, um, you know, to expand the Asian bloc was set up so that to counter England and Australia. And if that were to expand further and further, no one knows where the powers will lie because more play, more teams, uh, more nations with voting rights, more chaos. So ICC top people, they want to control that. So it seems like you're saying that associate nations are being restricted by full nations at the top, but are they being assisted by the ICC and, and full nations at the bottom? You know, how much assistance is there going into sort of grassroots development, into increasing the player numbers, increasing the number of clubs and so on, so that there's a strong base of players for these nations to draw from to make their national teams stronger? Some, and people who like associate cricket would say not enough, but... There's 
a base funding for associates of about seventy thousand US per year, which is doesn't obviously doesn't go very far, and ten thousand for affiliates. On top of that, there's a scorecard system. The ICC actually controls this quite heavily, and that's based on their ranking and their participation numbers. And the higher your participation numbers, the higher your rank. And the top tier of funding, and it's completely different to all the other tiers we've talked about to, to date, gets uh, three hundred forty thousand from the ICC. Um, the high performance program as well exists for the top teams and that's uh, half a million to a million per year for those top teams as well. So there's a certain amount of money going into these teams to try and develop their cricket. But in the total context of how much the ICC earns, it's about 10% of their budget or 15% of their budget and an awful lot of the money that goes to the ICC is actually distributed to the full members as dividends and the associates are getting about an eighth of the money of what a, a the bottom full member it is, and then in the next cycle, because of the position paper, the BCCI will be getting a hundred million per year from the ICC, which they really don't need, and it could be spent on development. So, in terms of development, the ICC is doing what it can within their offices. The ministry people in the ICC do a really good job, but in terms of the politics of the ICC and where its funding goes a lot of that money is actually just being distributed back to the full members for them to do with as they wish. Something I was really interested to read recently was that uh, in the lead-up to Sri Lanka winning the World Cup in 96, they had their coach and their physiotherapist were paid for by, I think, one by Cricket Australia and the physio by Cricket New South Wales, basically as a, a charitable act to, to help a smaller country that needed assistance. They went on to win that World Cup. Is that a sort of is that kind of fraternal attitude something that's that's been professionalised out of cricket administration or why did it happen then would it happen now and and why could it happen it could happen of course anything can happen I mean if you look at uh, the relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan at least on cricket level uh, cricket terms anyway uh, there is some good uh, fraternal fraternal uh, relationship there um, whereas if you look at how India and Nepal doesn't exist. I don't think any relationship exists in terms of uh, cricket. Whereas India has all the money um, and all the facilities, and which they could share with Nepal. And Nepal has a very passionate fan base, but they don't do it at all. Um, Australia did it in '96 uh, uh, with Dav Watmore and uh, Alex Contoris doing that, um, loaning them to Sri Lanka. Um, does Australia now do it for uh, Papua New Guinea? Is, you know, everybody is after their only short-term gains in terms of you know scheduling as many matches amongst the three of them again and again and again, and people have insatiable appetite. Even if these are being whitewashes, five nil here, four nil there, people still watch it. And as long as the broadcast, I think that's another aspect of uh, cricket that. We haven't discussed, which is the role of the broadcasters. Broadcast. I mean, we talk about, uh, say, Srinivasan or Dalmia or Sutherland or Giles Clark, whoever. They do have power, a lot of power. But the broadcasters, ICC in ICC's case, which is Star Sports, they have so much power. This is hearsay um, about there was Asia Cup um, last year in Bangladesh. You know, all the Asian teams played. Um, the grounds were very small. Shaida Fridi had two top edges that went for sixes of Ashwin and Pakistan beat India. I was heard that uh, broadcasters were not happy with the size of the grounds. So when the World T20 happened, the ground sizes were larger. So if broadcaster can micromanage that, 
I'm sure they can manage. I'm, and you already know about Test Championship and Champions Trophy coming, making a comeback, so on and so forth. So, so you're looking at, uh, I mean, you know, things like an Australian broadcaster wouldn't be interested in screening Australia versus Papua New Guinea, for instance, because it, you know there wouldn't be that much interest in it. So that's effectively why those matchups won't happen. Yeah, the thing is, though, they might be interested if it was Ricky Ponting playing and there were some interesting old ex-players playing. And so I think that's where we, and we've talked about this before, the uh, the has-beens 11 or the legends 11 playing some of these smaller nations would, would be quite popular, I would have thought. If it probably makes nine. a difference to them, depending if you frame it as has-beens or legends. <laughs> yes, you know. perhaps. You know, I, I would like to make another point, which is, uh, uh, correspondingly to Australia, Ricky Ponting playing to India. This does not, of course, apply to all Indian cricket fans. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to stereotype them, but Indians love watching India play. More than that, they watch India win. Mm. So they don't really care. <laughs> right? Don't go by the uh, some of the hip people on Twitter saying this and that, but vast majority, they love watching India play. Uh, their stars play, set up records, uh, win. They love that. So if you were to give them a play Afghanistan, say they play 15 times in four years, and say uh, they win 14 out of 15 times, Indians fans will be happy. There'll be viewership for that. Definitely. No, they'd be furious about the one they lost. <laughs> <laughs> but that's stones. true. I mean, Sachin Tendulkar is, is in support of this. He said you could have India A, B, C, D and E, and they could all be playing at the same time. And imagine how many television shows we'd get out of that. That, well, that would be great. I think Gideon said that perfectly, saying as being the highest scorer, he wants 25 teams in the World Cup, which is fantastic. Yeah. I don't understand why we have to restrict to 14, 12, 10. Right. Open it up. Yeah, I mean, if you've got this much interest in sort of domestic T20 leagues, then surely there could be some interest in national teams that aren't necessarily your national team, but um, you'd, you'd still tune in to watch them play. I don't know if it's, you know, I would watch Nepal play Hong Kong, but I don't know if everyone's sort of that level of, of cricket. And how deep, good would it be if we had Papua New Guinea in the, in the Big Bash? Uh, why not? Or particularly, I mean, say the domestic one-day competition mm. in Australia, which is, you know, a dead duck anyway. No one is interested in it. No one wants to watch the, you know whatever it is, Better Homes and Gardens, you know, buddy 50 over cup that changes name every year. Yeah. Um, that might actually add a little bit of interest in it to, to whack a Papua New Guinea team in there and, and see how they fare. So Papua New Guinea at the moment, actually, and, and to be fair to Cricket Australia, they do do some development work. Um, Papua New Guinea have been playing in the South, African, uh, South, African, South Australian Premier League uh, for the last couple of seasons, and, and that's allowed them to get two-day cricket against uh, obviously fairly high-quality grade players. Mm-hmm. From the perspective looking at the World Cup, the World Cup's not a very good development vehicle because what happens is you get to face Dale Stein and if you're not a great batsman, you probably face about three balls from Dale Stein before his, your stumps are spread eagle. <laughs> and you can do that 10 times and you still probably only face 30 balls because that's what's going to happen. So from the perspective of developing players, it's actually much better to have those players playing within first-class structures within the four members. The county cricket has not just for... the the Ireland, Scotland's obviously over a long period of time been great for West Indies, it's been great for Pakistan, it's been great for New Zealand because it brings players into those high-quality structures that teaches them how to train, it makes them more professional and it gives them an income. And one of the the best things that could happen for associate cricket is for full members to open out their first-class structures, open out their um, T-Test 20 domestic leagues to, to actually bring those players in, not just for their experience but also so they actually have that opportunity to train and learn from those players that are around them because they're going to learn a lot more training than they are going to be playing against them. And I think what's suggested to bring in these teams to play as a domestic team is actually less is, it would be less valuable than it would be for them to actually individually just poach all those players to 
play there, as long as they can still play for their national team, of course, because if they get poached by England every time they get any good, that's not going to bring the the standard up. No, and this is something that's you know that's really wreaked quite a lot of damage to to some associate teams is you know losing players. the The rules around um, changing nations seem to be fairly erratic and and fairly backwards. Like you see players jump from small teams to larger teams very easily but then they have to wait out a qualifying period if they get ditched by the bigger team before they can go back and, and play for their original side. I mean, that just tells you which way the power dynamics works in international cricket. That is just ridiculous. I mean, why should, uh, if tomorrow Owen Morgan thinks England are a crap team, which they are, uh, Ireland is the best uh, European team according to recent results. Um, so, and if he wants to come back and Ireland is willing to take him back, why should he wait, you know? Um, and perhaps someday somebody will have the courage to sue them in in telling them that you know they're preventing them from earning a livelihood in that sort of Colpac yeah, yeah. style case. <laughs> so they could uh, do that. Um, and one earlier point I wanted to make was uh, ICC. I mean, 1996. Before that, cricket was uh, you know just a small uh, mom and pop shop. You know, run from the ba- uh, back of lords. Um, India became a market and Dalmia realized the potential in TV revenue and it's going to need another um, administrator with very long vision seeing, well, why should we have only 10 teams playing? If we have 100 teams playing, you're going to have that much more revenue. Somebody, somebody has got to come with that vision. Yeah, and I think um, Porterfield was saying, you know, it is supposed to be the international, you know, it's a, it's an I there for a reason. It's not the 10cc. <laughs> Thank God for that. Imagine yeah, the soundtrack. That's something you get in hospitals. Mm. <laughs> that's gone. You're on the Guardian World Cup podcast as we head towards the close with Russell Degnan, Kat Jones and Subhash Jairaman, Jeff Lemon. In the hosting chair, and we should use the last few minutes today to pay obeisance to our ICC Masters and have a quick glimpse at the quarterfinals and the full members playing therein. Rather than just going through and tipping the favourites to win, maybe we should approach this by asking, can Sri Lanka challenge South Africa at the SCG? Can Bangladesh do anything against India in Melbourne? Can Pakistan threaten Australia at Adelaide or can the West Indies conjure anything against New Zealand in Wellington? Yes, of course. Uh, from what we... Of <laughs> All course, of them. That is, that is, that's the whole essence of sport, that anything can happen. Um, especially South Africa. Let me start there. Uh, the South Africa match. From what we have seen in the match that between Pakistan and South Africa, uh, good fast bowling will always get you. Um, and what we saw in that match, Misbah, who has always been blamed to being a very conservative tuk-tuk uh, guy, went all-out attack. He just kept attacking, kept the field up, kept the field up. Even as Dale Stein was like pushing, you know, forward defense was going for four. Kyle Abbott was defending for four. He's, he kept the field up and he got the wickets. And that's uh, that's something that and which Brendan McClellan has been doing as well. And that's something that every team should adopt. Just go all out attack, even if it's a much you know higher skill team. You know you have Stain, A, B, Hashim, attack, attack, attack. You can beat them. Yeah, I think uh, Sri- I, I would like to tip Sri Lanka to win this one, and I, I think that he, AB scored his fastest one fifty at, at the SCG. He's he's due for a fall at this particular ground. On the other hand, Sangakara, what can prevent him from scoring another century? He's fifth. Nothing. How how key is it to South Africa to bat first? I was absolutely staggered to. Uh, to see them being sent in um, a few days ago, 
Now, mm. if, if, if they and and you know, they've they've gone and smash every team they've played batting first, and they've looked like kittens batting second. So um, that toss will be will be immense. But Sri Lanka's bowling is pretty threadbare. Um, you know, Herath might be back, but who knows? Um, true. In terms of South Africa, um, batting first, they are superhumans. Batting second, I don't know what they are. Um, not want to use the c word, chokers. That is. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know what happens to them. Uh, I spoke to Alan Donald once, and uh, he said about looking at the little kid in 1999 H. Baston with their head in his hands, crying, and he saw that video again and again and again till he got over it. I don't know what these players are doing. He's now with the team, so I'm sure he's mm-hmm. telling them, "Listen, I've gone through this. Uh, I don't want you to go through this." But looks like. If the coin is not with them, they might go through it again in Sydney. India's been tremendous with the ball. They've ta- they're the only team to take all 60 wickets in the pool stages. Um, but then Bangladesh are, are back. They swarmed New Zealand the other night and you know got quite close to, to pulling off a heist that would have boosted them up the uh, the rankings table as well. So... Is, uh, is there a chance there for an upset? No, I don't think so. India are playing at their home ground, remember? Yeah, true. <laughs> oh, it, amazing atmosphere there, you know, that, yeah. that uh, match against South Africa, sort of 90,000-odd in, and I'm sure it'll be just as packed, if not more so. But Mamadala's going for his third century in a row. I mean, that would be great if he got it. I, I just don't think Bangladesh should win. I want India to win, actually. So I'm, I'm tipping India. Tamim usually does well against India for whatever reason. Um, and he hasn't had a particularly good World Cup so far. So I would expect him to get some runs. And there used to be a time where India used to, uh, or Bangladesh used to be intimidated by India. Um, and that's no longer the case. Um, they have had reasonable number of wins in, especially the 2007 World Cup where they sent them home. That was huge to Bangladesh's confidence. So, um, they're bowling well. They have, Two really good fast bowlers, which you're going to need. Um, reasonably good uh, team out in the field, fielding-wise. And if Mamadullah carries on that form and Tamim Iqbal comes to the party, definitely India will have their hands full. New Zealand have bowled beautifully and generally batted atrociously in the tournament so far. You know, McCullum's had some some whirlwind innings at the top, but then, you know, they've they've been unconvincing in just about every small chase they've had. I tend to think maybe it's maybe it's far fetched, but you know the West Indies have some pretty decent seam bowling. They'll be bowling in New Zealand. Um, you know, are they a chance to to knock over the Kiwis for not too much? Key is Ken Williamson. Absolutely, I mean, you get him, you can get New Zealand. Um, the other day, you know, Corey Anderson, and then finally Saudi and Vittori got him over. But I think uh, West Indies bowling attack is a little bit more competent and more. They have more oomph than uh, Bangladesh. So they can definitely get to New Zealand, but Ken Williamson, doesn't matter whether uh, the West Indies bat first, ball first, um, they have to get Ken Williamson. Yeah, I think, I think New Zealand will, will definitely win this. I mean, we've got, uh, we've got Gale, who's not due another good match for two years or so. So I think um, New Zealand, not a problem really against the West Indies. I can't see them putting out much of a fight at all. Kat, we've watched a lot of Pakistan recently. They've, their battery of fast bowlers have really come good after an indifferent start. I mean, even in that opening loss to India, Pakistan bowled well. But, you know, particularly recently, they've choked Zimbabwe, then rolled the South Africans, um, and they were... Brilliant against Ireland uh, on Sunday night when when Ireland were looking to smash through the last 10 overs and set a big score. They just could not get away against the Pakistan bowlers. So against Australia, against that power-packed lineup, 
on the Adelaide Oval, there won't be a huge amount of assistance in terms of bounce, but you know there may be a, a little bit of grip for some of the slower balls and so on. And Pakistan are playing on the Adelaide Oval for the third time. They've, they've had recent experience mm-hmm. here. They'll have a bit of crowd behind them, not not a lot. And Australia has no spin option, basically, on that yeah, look, No, no, remember, Maxwell against Pakistan in one day. Is, oh, true, the double, he, double yeah, wicket maiden. He could win the match. And how good would that be in the last over? We could get Maxwell coming on. I think uh, Maxwell will have confidence against Pakistan, but he might be the... Uh, I really would love to see Pakistan win this because I think they're on a roll. They deserve to win. They've got four in a row. They're really improving at this end of the comp. They're, they're looking spectacular. And uh, Pakistan's kryptonite historically has been uh, left arm spin. <laughs> so although Australia's stocks are not as good, you still have Doherty. And plus, we do have Clark. He's the uh, he's the top top strike rate, was it, or the, the uh, best economy rate? Best economy yeah. rate in the World Cup so far. Michael yeah. Clark, two point eight and over from uh, <laughs> from his five vicious overs against Afghanistan. Yeah. So, you know, he's he's top of the world. What do you think, Russell? Who's going to win out of Australia and Pakistan? I think you'd be brave to go against the home side, just because <laughs> there is that advantage to playing home and. But it, look, Pakistan's bowling is really good, and Australia's batting doesn't always look that good. So it, 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 the entire battle comes down to that; those two things. I, I'm not sure it really matters how Australia bowls to Pakistan so much. They'll set a total, but Australia's batting could fail spectacularly. It often does in the top order. They, they they are often four or five down for not many. You get you get Finch nicking off. You get Warner popping one to cover, and you know suddenly the pressure's on. But. I think um, as well as Trent Bolt and Saudi have bowled, I think the bowler of the tournament is Mitchell Stark. Yes. Mm. Um, he has been phenomenal. I watched that game in uh, Eden Park. It was just as if he had a you know, radar located right at the bottom of the stumps. Yeah. And, and these are professional batsmen. It's not some random Tom, Dick and Harry, you know. And he was getting through him. He was beating him in air. Mm. Um and Pakistan's top order, as Safras has come in, is doing well. But, mm. yeah, now if you give Mitchell Stark and X-Man, yeah, I, I doubt Pakistan can here's, do that. Here's a stat. I wrote a piece on Mitchell Stark a couple of days ago. Um, mm. Currently has the best strike rate in one-day international history, the best <laughs> bowling average in one-day international history. Uh, he's played 38 games. In those 38 games, he's taken five five-wicket hauls. Wasim Akram took six in 350 games. What What is going on Yeah, there? it's crazy, isn't it? That's amazing. I mean, I know he hasn't had much luck in, in the tests, but imagine what he's going to be like in the Ashes if this form continues. He could carry this over to every format. That is it from us this week for the Guardian World Cup podcast. We'll be back with you next week after the quarters and before the semis to look back and look forward and predict and prognosticate and uh, see what will greet us in the weeks to come. Time is growing short in this World Cup, but it's been a hell of a ride so far. We'll look forward to joining you then, and my thanks to Subhash Jayaraman, Russell Degnan, and Kat Jones for joining me today. Till next time. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/audio.